Times the charm, a commanding victory for Benjamin Netanyahu in last week's Israeli election, with a clear path to form a stable government for the first time in years. Our special guest this week is from Tel Aviv Axios correspondent Barack Ravid for a post-mortem on last week's election and the crystal ball for what comes next. Don't push pause, you're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, Barack Ravid joining us today. Always colorful commentary. I look forward uh, to the banter and the discussion uh, coming up. I do want to note, Jared, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. I'm pretty passionate about it. A big announcement uh, over the past couple of weeks from Morningstar, the financial research giant. We've talked a little bit about this. Their ESG that's environmental social governance ratings, uh, been under scrutiny for potential bias against Israel, the BDS campaign coming into their ratings. Done a lot of writing and, and speaking about this. And big announcement from the company pledging to make a bunch of changes to their assumptions, their sources. They're prohibiting the use of the UN Human Rights Council as a source. They're putting a bunch of BDS NGOs that they've been using as sources under review. Um, all good stuff. Welcome. Big repudiation from the founder and chairman of Morningstar of BDS. The big question that remains is, for the more than 100 companies currently subject to negative ratings from the sourcing and assumptions they have been using to date, and there are companies even on watch lists where they are telling investors, be wary, this is a human rights violator, a company like a Motorola Solutions or Elbit Systems uh, for simply providing support to Israel's counterterrorism efforts. Uh, we're going to wait and see if these companies come off watch lists, if these ratings get improved with these with these announcements, but but a really big first step. Yeah, and, and Kohaka vote to you, Rich. I mean, right, this is one of those things where there's no real Republican or Democratic way to, to address this issue other than, you know, ESG, uh, civil rights can't be a beard for anti-Israel bias, right? And we're seeing it all over the place. I think this is a big victory, right? Because it shows it shows other people and other organizations that there is a path to both do the ESG field right without getting caught up in in Israel politics uh, and the BDS movement, which really has nothing one has nothing to do with the other. So. Good, good work on that, and you know, really happy to see this positive development. Um, and so, you know, as with uh, lots of things here, but I'm uh, giving you giving you credit for you know running with the ball here. Well, thank you, Jared. I appreciate that. Let's uh, go ahead and bring on Barack Ravid. We got a lot to cover with him on the election results. Barack Ravid, contributing correspondent at Axios, based in Tel Aviv, he writes their weekly newsletter, Axios from Tel Aviv, covers everything that matters from Cairo to Tehran. Barack also writes for Walla News in Israel, and he joins us here today. Barack, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. 
Good to be here again. Well, why not uh, start? Give us the rundown on the results first to uh, get us rolling here. Um, so we actually had uh, uh, quite interesting results, uh, other than the fact that you know Netanyahu's right-wing bloc uh, obviously won the election. It's going to form the government. But the results were sort of similar to the 2016 presidential elections in the U.S., Meaning, um, in the um, in in the final results, and um, when you look at the seats in the Knesset, Netanyahu's right wing bloc got sixty four seats, and Yair Lapid's center left bloc got fifty six seats. But when you look at the popular vote, actually, the center left uh was depends how you count it it was either it was a, 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 a literally a tie in the popular vote or the center left even got some more votes than than the right wing bloc and the reason that the results are like they are is because what we in israel call the electoral threshold meaning every party in order to get into the knesset needs to get at least 3. 25% of the votes. Two parties from the center-left bloc uh, did not reach the electoral threshold. And basically, something like almost 300,000 votes that they got were basically thrown to the trash and were not really counted as being part of the center-left bloc, giving basically four seats to the other side. Uh, so just... Um, so, I mean... A lot of people saw the results of the elections as if it was, you know, this right-wing wave that swept the country. It's not exactly that. When you, again, when you look at the popular vote, this country is still very much divided, really 50%, 50% between the two sides of the political map. So I think this is very interesting for American voters that really have no concept of a parliamentary democracy. And even a parliamentary system like in Britain, this is even more complex, it, it would seem. Um, when you're doing a campaign, right, like when Lapid's starting a campaign, BB starting the campaign, they're all, everybody knows the rules, right? So they're all it's like tactically trying to position themselves for this reality. What What is it that BB did right? What is it that Lapid did wrong? Um, I got to tell you, um, it's not... You know, again, Lapid and Netanyahu, they know. But I was surprised how much the, you know, average voter doesn't really understand how the system works. I, I, w I was very surprised. Uh, I'm telling you, even like, you know, my, my, my parents, uh, we spoke before the elections and they said, my mother said, I'm going to vote for Lapid. So I told her, okay, why are you going to vote for Lapid? And she said, well, because he needs to be as powerful as he can be because the, the, the uh, party that gets the most seats is the one that is forming the coalition. And I told her, mom, you're almost 80 years old. You voted like forever here. Uh, that's not how elections in Israel take place. Those are not the rules because the person who forms the government is the one that his block got 61 seats, not the person who has, that his party has the most seats. And over the history, uh, we had, you know, several uh, cases that the politician that 
was heading the party with the most seats did not form the form the government and just a year and a half ago we had a politician Naftali Bennett that formed the government when his own party had only six seats so it's not about how many votes you get as the leader of a party or the part the party gets it's not a direct uh, voting for a politician it's for a party but it doesn't matter it doesn't always matter how much how many votes the party gets it matters if this party at the end of the day manages to get enough votes to form a coalition Brock let me ask you a question uh, and I want to come back to BB and and BB being the the politician with 157 lives I want to come back to that in a second but uh, I find what you just said really fascinating. And I guess my question is, is that does this experience um, like the one your parents just had with you, do you think there is a moment here where people in Israel like finally, because 300,000 votes for center left blocks effectively, as you said, get thrown in the trash. Do you think there's going to either be a change in the way Israeli voters understand the system or a change in the way these parties conduct business where like if they're polling uh, you know, are these minor parties going to go away because they can't meet the electoral threshold and they're really hurting their own cause by by being in existence? Well, I want to say yes, <laughs> but I'm not sure people would, you know, get the message uh, because uh, they should have gotten it already. And I'm talking about politicians, not voters. Mm-hmm. In 1992, in 1992, we had a similar situation, but from the other side, the center-left ran a very in a very organized way, and small parties united to form big, bigger parties in order not to waste any votes. And the right was divided and with no clear leadership, and and one party did not pass the threshold, basically throwing votes to the trash, giving the victory to the other side. So politicians, people that, that's your job. You know, you have one job as a politician to know how you get elected and how you're not get elected. And apparently there were several politicians in the center left that, you know, didn't get this memo. And uh, (laughs) one of them, one of them is, and and by the way, uh, I mean, you asked what what were the uh, what were Lapid's mistakes? Uh, one of the mistakes Lapid made, and it's not only him; it's his whole his whole block, is the fact that he couldn't uh, really get his uh, block to get it its act together and run in an organized and orderly manner. And it was so divided. Um, the the I think that half of the parties in Lapid's block didn't even agree that he's the leader of the bloc. And for weeks, Lapid tried to convince the leader of the Labour Party, Merav Michaeli, to run together in a united uh, list with the Meretz Liberal Left Party. Because both of them in the polls were polling at four seats, five seats. That's really like on the threshold. Meaning that, you know, if it rains in Tel Aviv for three hours, that's it, you're done. You're not passing the threshold. Um, and she refused. She she even said that, you know, it wasn't like a million years ago. It was a month ago. She said that the Labour Party is going to be the ruling party. And, and she didn't want to uh, unite with Meretz. 
and the results was that Meretz didn't pass the threshold. The Labor Party won four seats and was that close to not passing the threshold too, and uh, basically giving Netanyahu, um, you know, a gift of of two seats. Um, and I think that um, Merav Michaeli will, uh, you know, got her got herself a place. Uh, not a good place, but a place in the political history of Israel, especially the political history of the center-left in Israel. And she will remember forever, forever, as the one who was the key factor behind uh, Netanyahu's victory in this election. Obviously, she's not the only one. As I said, Lapid had the responsibility too. The Arab parties were as divided as they could be, which also... Uh, led to one of them not passing the threshold, throwing away 140,000 votes. Um, if, uh, and, and just so that you understand, the reason that the Arab parties did not run together was because they had an argument over who is going to be on the seventh spot on their list when in all the polls they never even got to seven seats. Right. So they were fighting over a hypothetical seat and they didn't get an agreement on it. So they divided. And at the end, you know, they just, you know, threw uh, votes to the trash and got Netanyahu, the prime ministership. Um, so I think they, them too will be remembered forever as the ones who, because of, it's not even, you know, to say that it's a petty argument is, is the understatement of the century. It's really, you know, the most stupid argument ever uh, that basically led to Netanyahu getting another two seats. If those parties passed the threshold or ran, you know, with other parties so they, they won't drop, uh, Netanyahu wouldn't win the election. It's that simple. So speaking of, of Bibi Netanyahu, um, we, you know, he's the central player in a lot of this uh, in a lot of this conversation. Um, you know, he's really the, uh, election, the, the guy who, who has nine lives and, you know, in America, they say there are no second acts in American politics, but clearly in Israel, there are second acts and there are third acts. Um, what did, do, do we all underestimate Bibi? I mean, this really seemed unlikely, uh, after the loss last time. And, and here we are again, and it looks like, you know, Bibi Netanyahu is going to be prime minister yet again and probably going to have far-reaching uh, changes that he's going to implement on the judicial system as it relates to his own prosecution. Well, first, Jared, I, I got to tell you, um, I'm not sure that I agree with your uh, remark that in the U.S. there are no second acts. Um, I... Um, I just read like five minutes ago um, on Axios a story that uh, Donald Trump is going to announce that he's running uh, running again. He's going to announce it uh, like next week or so. Um, and, you know, he has quite a good chance of winning the election. So you will have maybe a president in a second act, too. Um, now look at Joe Biden. But, Joe Biden. I mean, fair, fair enough. I mean, you... Enough. you I know your comparison is people who won usually and then come mm. back, but you know Joe Biden, he was around for a long time losing, and then he finally won. So, you know. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair and enough. by the way, and in Israel, and in Israel, you know, Ariel Sharon, who was the late Ariel Sharon, was a very famous politician. 
in Israel, was a prime minister, and he said that the number one rule in politics is always stay on the wheel. Always stay on the wheel. One day you're up, one day you're down, but you're still on the wheel. And I think I that, like that... I like that. Yeah, and I think that Bibi... Bibi um, um, he understood that. And by the way, he understood that quite late because after he lost the first time, he, he, he left the wheel. He left the wheel. Uh, and it took him some time to... It took him, he had to uh, make much more efforts, much bigger efforts to go back on the wheel. And I think that this time he realized that um, he must stay on the wheel. By the way, the main reason that he needed to stay on the wheel is to try and get uh, either a plea bargain uh, with the attorney general for his uh, three cases of fraud, breach of trust, and bribe that he's being tried for. Or, um, you know, hope that something will change and he will be able to win the election in order to become prime minister again, headed, heading as a, a right-wing bloc that will enable him to pass laws or take steps to stop his trial. And he tried the first option. He tried to get a plea bargain with the attorney general. He was very close. The attorney general decided not to do it the last minute. And um, and Netanyahu was w- very weak at the time, but he stayed on the he stayed on the wheel, and by staying on the wheel, he found himself again running in elections and winning it, and now he will be able to um, he he has the best chance with this sixty uh, four seat majority in the Knesset um, and with political allies that really don't give a shit about the uh, judicial system, uh, he'll be able to, you know, pass a lot of laws that will basically uh, stop his trial. So I want to talk about the coalition in a second, but I I know our listeners who are listening to the back and forth on how the coalitions get put together, the electoral thresholds, uh, certainly for an American audience are thinking like, I don't get it. Why not just have Bibi Netanyahu run against Yair Lapid <laughs> for prime minister. And actually, you know, they tried that. We asked ourselves that too. And and the, the problem, of course, is you have the complication of if you remain a parliamentary system below the prime minister, you could have a parliament potentially with a different coalition than the sitting prime minister, and that creates complications. Um so who knows? Everybody criticizes American democracy. Maybe we are uh, maybe we are the best uh, in the world. But um, the, the coalition that is likely to form here, uh, I'd love to sort of go deeper there to profile who's in the coalition, both personalities and parties. What do they stand for? And what is that likely to mean for the policies of the government we will see? OK, let's let's start with, you know, very broad lines of this coalition. First, it's the most right-wing, conservative, religious um, uh, uh, government Israel has ever had since its founding in 1948. Okay, uh, that's first. Second, it's um, if if the previous government, the previous coalition, was uh, one of its core uh, or one of its good things was that it was very, very diverse, maybe the most diverse coalition ever. 
this coalition will be really homogenous. Um, I'll just give you an example. Um, in the previous coalition, we had, it was 61 members of Knesset, 30 out of them were women. In this coalition, it's a 64-member uh, coalition with only nine women. Second thing, for the first time since Israel was established, the majority of members of the coalition are either ultra-Orthodox or national religious. And it's not only, you know, this anecdote, because at the end of the day, this will reflect on the, uh, the government policies. Uh, maybe the most interesting uh, thing in this coalition is that the uh, extreme right in Israel, who used to be really on the fringes and best case scenario managed to get five seats into the Knesset and, and was never really part of the government, this time the, the radical right in Israel uh, um, basically formed uh, a party which is, you know, a Jewish supremacist party that won 14 seats and will be the third biggest party in the Knesset and will have huge influence on government policy, mainly because it will have a lot of leverage over Netanyahu that will need them, will need their members in order to, you know, pass the laws he needs to pass in order to try and stop his trial. And this is really an unprecedented thing in, in, in the history uh, of Israel, that the radical right, the Jewish supremacist right, is so strong. And, and from being really, really on the fringes is now going to be in, uh, you know, really a positions of power that were unimaginable. Just, and I'll just give you an example. Um, the... Um, the, the ministries that they're asking for right now are the ministries of defense and the ministry of internal security. That's basically being in charge of the IDF and of the police. Uh, that's, uh, you know, this is a huge thing, a huge thing. Um, so those are the, this is the coalition in, in very broad, uh, broad lines. And I think that if you ask about, if you talk about possible future policies, you're looking at a, you know, the worldview of the majority of, of the people in, in of the members of this coalition is ultra conservative and racist, um, uh, misogynist, uh, xenophobic, anti-Arab. Um, it's just uh, there's no other way uh, to look at it. Um, if, if we started talking about the Jewish supremacist party, uh, uh, the religious uh, Zionism, that's the name of the, of the list. It, it includes three different factions. Brock, tell us about Ben Gavir and, and, and that, and the role in forming the government, uh, where they are in the coalition. Uh, and, you know, a lot in the democratic movement, um, democratic party in America, democratic pro-Israel party, People are really concerned about this, um, and they're talking about how it's making it very difficult, in uh, already a difficult situation some days, to to align with the Netanyahu government. And now they've taken, effectively, the Israeli Marjorie Taylor Greene, 
and, and are going to put him in the government and, and probably have him control key ministries, right? So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So first, just, you know, uh, the premise of your question, just so that our listeners would, would, would understand. I, as far as I know, the concerns about Ben Gvir and his Jewish supremacist party is not only in the Democratic Party. Ahead of the elections, both Senator Robert Menendez, who's a Democrat, and Senator Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican, both met Netanyahu and both, both raised concerns about Ben Gvir being a minister of the, in the government and what it could do to the bipartisan support of Israel in the U.S. Now let's talk about Ben Gvir himself. Uh, so basically Itamar Ben Gvir, uh, who's heading one of the factions in the uh, Jewish supremacist party, the religious Zionism, uh, he's heading the Jewish power uh, faction. That's its name, Jewish power. And Ben Gvir is a student of Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was the uh, leader of the Kach party, uh, the uh, racist radical right uh, party that, uh, that was um, founded in the 1970s and worked in the 1980s. Um, um, and Rabbi Meir Kahana, when he was elected to the Knesset, and when he would go up and speak in the Knesset, all the members all the members of, of the Knesset, including those from the Likud, would walk out of the room because they didn't agree to legitimize him. And uh, Kach Party was also uh, uh, designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. government. It was there until last May when it was removed because it was, wasn't operational anymore. And Ben Gvir when uh, a few months before uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, he uh, went to a demonstration and he stood before the television cameras and held the emblem of Rabin's Cadillac. And he said, we got to Rabin's car, next we will get to him. And several weeks later, Rabin was shot by uh, an assassin, a right-wing murderer. And this murderer, Igal Amir, in his investigation with the Shin Bet Security Service, one of the names that he brought up as people who were in his circles was Itamar Ben-Gvir. And Itamar Ben-Gvir, until last year, had in his living room on the wall a framed picture of Baruch Goldstein the mass murderer who murdered 29 Palestinian worshippers in the tomb of patriarchs in Hebron in the 90s. And I can go on and on and on about Ben Gvir, how he was convicted for supporting a terrorist organization, how he, um, um, how he claimed that in several cases that Israel, the Jews who uh, attacked Palestinians were not terrorists, and how he, just during that, that, the current campaign, said that he wants to establish a ministry, a new ministry, to encourage immigration of Arabs from Israel. Not Palestinians from the West Bank, which is also totally unacceptable, but Arab Israelis that encourage their immigration from the country. 
Um, this is uh, the guy who very soon, it's highly, uh, I think it's, it's, it, there's a very good chance that he's going to be the Minister of Internal Security in charge of the police. And not only in charge of the police, in charge of the policy in Jerusalem and in the holy sites in Jerusalem, mainly, you know, the the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the most sensitive place in the world. So that's Itamar Ben-Gvir. But he's not the only one, because within this this, uh, uh, party, there are others. There's Betzalel Smotrich, who wants to be the Minister of Defense. And Betzalel Smotrich uh, was arrested by the Shin Bet during the Gaza disengagement in 2005 and was suspected of trying to organize a terrorist attack. The former head, the, the former deputy of the Shin Bet, deputy head of the Shin Bet, said publicly that, that he was involved, that Smotrich was involved in terrorism. And uh, um, just to say, you know, he was never uh, convicted, uh, to, to his credit. Um, but Smotrich, uh, several years later, organized a parade, an anti-gay parade parade. Uh, he called it the Animal Parade. And several years later, he said, he gave a, a statement and said that he doesn't want his wife when she gave birth. He doesn't want his wife to be in the same room with Arab women. And several months ago, when he was in the opposition, he gave a speech in the Knesset. And when several Arab members of Knesset uh, uh, shouted at him, you know, it's something very that we do in, in, in the Knesset, members of Knesset shout at each other. He told them something amazing. He told them that, that Arabs can be in the Knesset for now, meaning threatening that he will act in order to prevent Arabs from being elected. So he's going to be the minister. He, he wants to be the minister of defense. Another guy who's in this party is the head of, the, of a faction called Noam. This guy called Avi Maoz formed a party on that on two main issues anti-gay rights, anti-LGBTQ rights, and anti-women's rights. And he basically gave a list of his demands in the coalition negotiations now. One of this, those demands was to abolish the law that bans conversion treatment for gays. Another demand that he gave was that gay men will not be allowed to donate blood. I can go on and on and on, but I think you get the, you get the, the idea. So, so I do want to come back to the coalition itself. Obviously, this is, this is one very concerning part of your, your, your talking about, obviously, the tip of the controversy for, for news. Uh, I want to read this from the Wall Street Journal editorial uh, on the results of the election that just came out two, two nights ago. Quote, yet the outraged international press may be overreading the result. The slate's radical Otsma Yehudit party attracts only around 5% of the vote. And many of its new members, new voters, disclaim its worst ideas. But like its punchy Mizrahi leader, 
who presented a moderate face in the election. 90% of voters didn't choose the far right, which is more than can be said for many European countries. Your response to that? First, it's not true. <laughs> Let's start with that. It's not. You know, this, remi um, this reminds me of that because... scene in the beginning of My Cousin Vinny when Joe Pesci walks in and, 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 they get, and they give an opening statement and he goes, everything they just said is BS. And he just sits down at the defense. No, no, but no I, not I, everything. I, but no, but no it, not everything. But I, please go on, Barack, because like I think that that's the conversation that that Rich, Rich and I are having, and that American Jews are having, and that frankly the American political establishment is having now, right? Because you just went through a litany of like really bad stuff, and Israel is the light unto the nations, particularly in the Middle East. It's pro-gay rights. It's known for its pro-gay rights. You know, Tel Aviv pride like rivals or surpasses pride in San Francisco and in Miami and in New York. And here you have people going into this leadership coalition who are just they are uh, completely opposite that. And yet the Wall Street Journal says, hey, it's no big deal because most people aren't with them. Well, first, the Wall Street Journal is right that most people are not with them, <laughs> but enough people are, are with them. You don't have to. That's the thing. In our system, you don't need to have 90% of the population supporting your positions in order to uh, um, uh, implement the, your policy. That's the whole point. You don't. That's our, in, in our system, you only need to be the 60, you know, the, the uh, finger number 61. If you're finger number 61, you're the king. And it doesn't matter if you don't get the support of the majority of Israelis, okay? And second, I wish that 90% of Israelis wouldn't support uh, the far right. Unfortunately, um, first, this party got um, 14 seats, which is more than 10% of the Knesset, okay? So to say that 90% don't support is not true. Second, uh, unfortunately, many of the members of the coalition from other parties, and if you want, we can talk about it, basically support more or less the same stuff, okay? It's, uh, you, know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's always a spectrum, okay? But if you want to know where this coalition stands on the political spectrum, you should know that Benjamin Netanyahu is the most moderate, uh, 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 a person in the coalition. He's like, on the left of Netanyahu, there's nobody in this coalition. There's only the wall. So, you know, th and that's a fact. Nobody, again, inside the Likud, people, that's what people are saying. <laughs> so, like, to say that, uh, you know, 90% of Israelis or it's only, you know, that small, it's just not true. And I don't know who wrote this uh, editorial in the Wall Street Journal. He obviously knows nothing about the Israeli society One and Israeli politics. One of the things that I was hearing leading up to the campaign was that the TikTok social media type impact of Ben Gavir and the image he was putting forth to voters was attracting a certain younger crowd that was laughing and saying, oh, this is, this is funny, this mm -hmm. is cool. And that he may have attracted a an outsized vote just based on the campaign itself and not based on what he had done in the past, what his beliefs have been, et cetera. It, did, did that bear out? I did, think did, it's did both. we see young voters voting for him? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
totally. I, I think it's 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 part of what happened. I think it's um, uh, Ben Gvir managed to do what Netanyahu couldn't do for four election campaigns. He managed to move votes from left to right. And he did it partly because of first-time voters, mainly soldiers, who were, you know, watching him on TikTok and on Instagram and, you know, liked his persona. Uh, but also, but that's not the whole story. The, the second part of the story is that Ben Gvir managed to touch an issue that many Israelis across the board are concerned about, and this is law and order in the country. And I think that he managed to campaign on it better than anybody else. And this is why you saw people... Wait, in, he can't, Barack, I'm going to stop you right there. He campaigned on the, law and order, and he's going to go into a coalition with Bibi, who is then going to change the law to get his own corruption suit dropped? Yeah, well, when he says law and order, it's a certain kind of law and order, okay? Corruption is not a problem. For When he says law and order, it's basically how do we uh, uh, crack down on, on Arab gangs? That's basically what he's talking about, okay? And, and again, it's not like, it's not a made-up issue, not at all. It's a, it's a real issue. It's a real issue. In May last year, we had a war in Gaza. The war in Gaza, which basically started because of Ben Gvir. He was one of the igniters of the war. But during that war, the war spilled over to cities in Israel that both Jews and Arabs live in. And the intercommunal violence was terrible. And it was a shock to many, many Jews because for years... For years, the violence in those cities or the violence in Arab communities as a whole was mainly violence by gangs against Arabs. And when it was Arabs killing Arabs, the government didn't give a shit. And it was Netanyahu who was the prime minister for a decade, and he did nothing. But in during the war in Gaza, for the first time, those gangs that grew stronger and stronger and stronger uh, started, you know, shooting at their Jewish neighbors or, you know, burning their homes or throwing stones at them. And I think it was a shock for many Israelis. And Bengvir managed to, you know, to use this sentiment, which is, it's true. It's not made up. It's true. It's a real problem. And by the way, it's a problem that Arabs suffer much more from than Jews, much more. But he managed to use this thing in order to say, I will show them, you know, who's the boss. Them meaning the Arab Israelis. I have one more question on, on, on Ben Gvir, and, and, and I want to zoom back out because obviously the prime minister is likely to be Benjamin Netanyahu, and, and the government will have a, a set of policies that, mm -hmm. that Bibi will obviously be the one who chiefly uh, pushes for and, and helps create with negotiation, obviously, with the coalition partners. You know, I, I think back to a young Naftali Bennett who said a lot of very, very strong things when he was younger that did not play out when he was in the coalition, when he was prime minister. 
his views on the West Bank and on annexation and things like that. Um, I, I think about maybe even a better example, Avigdor Lieberman, who has said outrageous things over many, many years. We remember the headlines of disloyal Arabs should be beheaded, et cetera. Um, but has held very key posts, has not governed in the way that rhetoric has has to, you know shown in the past. And American interlocutors have worked with him. He has become normalized. I remember when Avigdor Lieberman first came on the scene, I remember this conversation happening. Everyone freaking out. What is going to happen? We can't have him in government. Americans aren't going to work with him. And over time, I feel like Avigdor Lieberman has been normalized, right? He's, 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 he's just another character in there, defense minister. He's, he's done it all. Why do we think that that won't likely happen here with Ben Gavir um, and others? Well, first, Avigdor Lieberman, you know, unlike Ben Gavir, <laughs> has no ideology whatsoever. Okay, zero ideology. Okay, he's a, the most cynical politician in Israel. Okay, by far. So I'm not sure that he's the that it's it's a good comparison. And but and both Lieberman and Bennett and you know Rich, you're right that that that's what people said about them. But they served in governments where they didn't have the leverage that. Uh, ben Gvir and Smotrich have over Netanyahu, and when they were in the coalition, it was a different Netanyahu. It was a very different Netanyahu. It was when they were the coalition. When Lieberman got fifteen seats in the two thousand nine elections, and everybody freaked out, the coalition that was formed had the Labor Party in it. It it was a unity government. It was you know Lieberman was. You know, sort of uh, his his influence was diluted, and Netanyahu back at the time in two thousand nine, he was like he was a middle of the road conservative politician. He wasn't, you know, I think since two thousand fifteen and later two thousand sixteen seventeen when the police investigation started, Netanyahu quite significantly radicalized. So I don't think we're in the same situation with Netanyahu, and I don't think that that Ben Gvir and Smotrich are Bennett and Lieberman. Uh, I think you know both of them are super religious. Uh, both of them uh, are um, much more ideological, uh, and both of them have much more leverage over Netanyahu. So I think that. You are right that you know there were sort of similar things in the past, but and uh, you know people saying, "Oh my God, what's going to happen?" And then turned out that nothing happened. But I don't think it's it's the same politi- kind of politician. I don't think it's the same kind of political environment Brock, and atmosphere. On the policy side, so you talked a bunch about. Um, you know, cracking down on Arab gangs uh, from a security standpoint. But do you see any um, notable changes in the in the foreign policy and the defense policy uh, in this new government? That obviously we don't know exactly what it looks like yet, but we have a, we have a sense of what it will look like. Do you see any big changes coming, or do you think it will you know go back to a, sort of a typical Netanyahu uh, that we've seen before? I think that the one of the things is that in this 
year and a half when Netanyahu was not in the government, the world has changed. Okay, the world has changed. Um, the Russia Russian invasion of Ukraine changed the world, and I think that you know just remember Netanyahu used to campaign on his relationship, good good relationship with Putin. He would put their picture on huge billboards across the country. Uh, I, you know, now it's much more problematic to do that. Um, uh, and I think, you know, Netanyahu used to um, campaign against the Iran deal. Now there's no Iran deal. It's dead. Iran is now working with uh, uh, Russia in Ukraine and murdering its own people. So it's like a main issue that Netanyahu used to deal with is now like, well, you know, there's nobody to fight with over an Iran deal. So, and sometimes, you know, for politicians, um, you know, it's like they don't want to take yes for an answer because then there's no, you know, they have, you know, it basically takes away from them a major tool to do their politics. So I think that Netanyahu will have to really, you know, digest the new... Um, um, strategic environment in the world right now. Um, you know, Netanyahu used to work actively against the EU, for example. Okay, it's a, you know, for Israel, it's not the main issue. Okay, but that was one of the things that Netanyahu was systematically doing. Today, to work against the EU is problematic in today's world because A, the EU is much stronger. Uh, because of the uh, war in Ukraine. And second, um, the U.S. is, you know, uh, is trying to strengthen the EU and, and the transatlantic relationship. So it's a lot, of, a lot of things that I think he will have to, you know, take a deep breath and look at the world and see how it is today and think whether uh, what was possible two years ago, whether it is still possible today. And I'm not even talk, starting to talk about, you know, the Palestinian issue, which, you know, good luck with that in, you know, um, forming a policy on the Palestinians when you have Ben Gvir and Smotrich uh, in the government. Really, like, it's, uh, it's close to an impossible mission. And when you have the Biden administration at the White House uh, pressing you from one side and, and Smotrich and Ben Gvir from the other side, you know, I don't want to be the person in the middle. All right, Barack, we're going to do quick lightning round takes election style. Election, yeah, the election edition. What was the best TV ad of the election? Ah, wow. You know, that's, um, first, it, it was, it wasn't a TV ad. It was a, like a, so, it was on social media. It was when BB did this, this challenge with the cups. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, that he built this tower from from paper cups and then like you know tore it down, so it became like this meme that everyone were were then doing the challenge of the paper cup <laughs> tower. That was definitely on on Instagram and TikTok, and that was definitely okay. What best. was the worst ad you saw of this election cycle? I think it was Merav Michaeli uh, Merav Michaeli's ad about how she uh, he was trying to to make. Um, um, sexual harassment proof buses. This was the this was really like I think 
the worst one. It was that nobody understands what she wants. I'll have to go look that up. <laughs> yeah. It's very abstract. I'm trying to understand yeah. a little better. But... No, no. It was, I'm telling you, I watched it three times. I just, you know, I, I just didn't understand, like, how is this going to give you votes in the elections? My final lightning round question. Uh, anybody who will surprise us that will pop up uh, in the government, whether in a key position, foreign minister, defense minister, or maybe a new ambassador to the United States? I think Ron Dermer is going to make a comeback to some kind of a role, maybe national security advisor, the former former ambassador to, to Washington. And uh, Yariv Levin, uh, Netanyahu's key ally in the Likud, is most likely to be the minister of foreign affairs. Barack Abid, always a pleasure to have you on. Always get us thinking. Uh, and I really we really appreciate the time. And we hope to have you back on the pod soon. Great. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.